From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. The President of the United States for two years has been labeling the traditional institutional press as the enemy, and let me emphasize enemy, of the American people. During the tenure of Trump, facts and truth have taken a beating. Fake news has come to mean reporting, with which a sector of news consumers do not agree. Today on our show, media law expert Lily Levy leads us down the road of hyperbole and alternative facts and examines how the landscape has been forever changed. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Lily. Thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Catherine. All right, let's dive into fake news. I don't know that there's ever been a Super Bowl commercial like the one the Washington Post did last Sunday. Can you talk a little about the environment where there's a need for something like that? It really was an extraordinary commercial, I have to say. And I think it was for two reasons, at least. One is that it was an ad for journalism. I don't think that there's ever been, at least in this kind of venue, an ad for journalism. Journalism being advertised as if it's a product, trying to be sold as if and and, and being made attractive to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so to my knowledge, this was the first time that this has happened. Um, and I think that it raises the question question of why the Post felt the need uh, to advertise in the Super Bowl. And the thing about the Super Bowl ad is that, you know, you're talking about a the most watched sport contest, one where the ads themselves are very much part of the story and very much part of the interpretation of what that event means socially and otherwise. Um, the second thing that I thought was really notable about that ad was that it highlighted the journalism, not just of the post, but of other outlets. And so normally we think of news organizations as being essentially competitors uh, who are looking to get the scoop and they're trying to ice each other out. But this ad suggests that today the press has to collaborate uh, on a single message that effectively justifies the existence of the press and its importance to democracy. And then the tagline of the ad, I think, really reinforces that um, So what is it, as you said in your question, what is it about the current environment that creates what the Post sees as a need to do this? I mean, Mm -hmm. why advertise in the Super Bowl, for heaven's sake? We are not toilet paper. We are the press. We have a constitutional basis. We're in the First Amendment. Um, And so why the need to do that? And I think that the simple answer is that the president of the United States for two years has been labeling the traditional institutional press as the enemy, and let me emphasize enemy, Mm -hmm. of the American people. Now, this is an extraordinarily inflammatory kind of statement, and it feeds into a generalized attitude that's been happening really for the past, um, you know, 50 years, a declining trust uh, by the public in the Um, in all of its institutions, but including and perhaps even most specially the media. Um, And so what do you do with an enemy? Well, you kill it, right? Mm -hmm. Or you kill him, her. Mm -hmm. And so what does that kind of rhetoric do to the way in which the public perceives the press? Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with talking about the press as being fake news, Mm -hmm. not necessarily as distributing fake news, disseminating fake news, but being fake news, Mm -hmm. what that does essentially is that it 
uh, it, it isn't a an attack on the factual accuracy of any particular story. Rather, I think it is a broad-based attack on the legitimacy of the institution as a whole. So it's not that that you're going to think um, that Hillary Clinton is a child sex trafficker, mm-hmm. but that you are going to think that CNN as a whole, the New York Times as a whole, um, even nowadays, perhaps the Wall Street Journal as a whole, um, is not purveying accurate information. So that the distrust in the work of those institutions will essentially uh, cross all the stories that they report. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the danger. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little about gatekeeping? You know, you're saying that the trend in in criticizing or questioning the press, where you had these huge media conglomerates that really did were gatekeepers, and they really did filter the information that got out to the public. And now it's a free for all, and kind of the side effect of that is that you're getting a lot of actual fake news. You know. The um, the sex, the pizza sex ring, for instance. Um, So can you comment a a little about what differentiates like fact finding, critical thinking media from. I don't know, inflammatory, skewed, uh, I don't want to single Breitbart out here, but but ones that are, are really. I mean, everybody's, yeah, everybody's skewering the news. Well, I think that, um, I mean, your question is obviously very layered and complicated. <laughs> and I think uh, it is the the sort of underlying uh, um, nut, I think, of your mm-hmm. question um, is what is the effect of fake news that is being disseminated uh, in so many different disaggregated uh, formats and venues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, there's a very good account of the empirical debate about this, actually, that just came out in Columbia Journalism uh, Review today in a very good article by Matthew Ingram. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, for example, that to the extent that we're talking about specific electoral results for specific uh, kinds of false factual claims, the literature is actually contested. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, we know that there are some political science researchers who... um, think that fears about the spread and influence of fake news during the 2016 presidential election were exaggerated. So this is, for example, Brendan Nyhan uh, from um, Michigan, I think. On the other hand, you have a book that came out last year by communications professor Kathleen Hall Jamieson um, that argues that misinformation uh, propagated by Russian trolls likely did influence, at least to some degree, the uh, outcome of the election. My response to this um, empirical dispute, if you will, is that we need to shift our focus with regard to the impact of fake news from questions about either the specific electoral effects or the fact of disaggregation of um, uh, news uh, sources and outlets to the fundamental delegitimizing effect of the distrust that is engendered by fake news claims Mm -hmm. and the press's reporting 
on fake news claims, which I think triggers a lot of repetition bias. Mm -hmm. Um, So the problem of the delegitimizing effect on the institution of the press is the most corrosive aspect of this, it seems to me. So, for example, let's say that Professor Nyhan is right uh, and that fake news Uh, the amount of quote-unquote actual fake news fell significantly between 2016 and 2018 midterm elections because of Facebook's efforts, among others. Um, That still doesn't blunt, I think, the delegitimating effect of the press, our fake news drumbeat, Mm -hmm. um, uh, because it creates a generalized skepticism and distrust across the board. Um, Now, what Yohai Benkler and his colleagues uh, from Harvard have argued in a a recent very interesting book is that what explains the 2016 election is a right-wing media ecosystem that is exemplified by Breitbart News, as you mentioned. So this group of researchers has concluded that the Breitbart-like media that have uh, who, whose goal was to uh, uh, lead to a hyper partisan impact on political discourse mm-hmm. um, simply set the agenda for both the liberal and even the conservative news organizations, including Fox News, mm-hmm. so that the Benkler uh, researchers lump together as mainstream media, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, etc., etc., as well as the AP um, In their view, what happens is that the right-wing media have been able to leverage social media to transmit this hyper-partisan spin backed up by disinformation. And so that, I suppose, is a kind of long way to answer your question, that it's a a sort of um, combo platter, Mm -hmm. if you will, of disaggregated but extremely strategic media specifically focused on Breitbart-like, alt-right media outlets using social media in a very sophisticated uh, uh, way. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the regular, quote unquote, mainstream news organizations um, using the same sorts of reporting standards, mas o menos, that they have been using all along. Now, grant you, you're absolutely right that there has been much more of a kind of commentary and opinion that has been bleeding into even factual reporting. Mm -hmm. I grant you that completely. Uh, But still, all of the New York Times-ish organizations, Wall Street Journal, and even Fox News and its reporting do hew to relatively, you know, a relative consensus of journalistic norms having to do with you know, some degree of accuracy and so on and so forth. Um, as a former reporter, I hope you will agree. Yes. Um, but, uh, but their agendas have been pushed by very sophisticated actors um, that are using social media in an effective way, perhaps not electorally effective, mm-hmm. but I would argue effective in um, uh, pushing this kind of distrust uh, notion to the public. Distrust and, and separation. Exactly. So Trump has been threatening even before the election um, of curtailing, like when I get in there, I'm going to, you know, fix these libel laws, you know, I'm going to hold the press accountable. Um, and the press seemingly has uh, pushed back with 
more than 800,000 Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, So I'm looking at kind of that left and and right side. Um, Can some of this rancor uh, be abated in the courts or or through through Congress? Um, Well, maybe. But I mean, first, I want to talk about the the rhetoric uh, that President Trump used, even as you said, um, in his I will roll back the libel laws. And he's been a litigant in a lot of libel actions. Um, Obviously, he can't do that as a matter of law. Um, so the question is whether or not the fact that those claims are really, um, hyperbolic, um, should make us feel relatively sanguine about how ultimately things are going to work out for the press, either in Congress or the courts or with regard to executive, uh, branch intervention. And I got to tell you, I think that the, um, there is a, appropriate concern of a kind of death by a thousand cuts mm-hmm. effect on the press. Um, so I don't, I obviously am not going to be able to go through the thousand cuts, but I think that there are dangers afoot mm-hmm. and that we should not dismiss the fact that president Trump cannot single-handedly change the libel laws as a way of, of saying, well, we're, we, there's nothing much to worry about. The first thing that everybody knows is that the Trump presidency has reached a new low in the degree of access that it has officially provided to the press. We know that CNN had to go to court to um, address the president's exile of CNN's chief White House correspondent, Jim Acosta, correspondent Jim Mm -hmm. Acosta. Um, And, you know, on the other hand, we also know that the Trump White House is a very leaky place and perhaps even leakier than other administrations. So unofficially, the press still continues to have some access. So is that something that we should say, well, we we shouldn't worry about access because unofficially they're getting the access that they need. Uh, The things are therefore not as bad as we thought. Again, I don't think so. I think that would be the wrong conclusion. Why? And why is it that I don't think that congressional or judicial you know, activity will sort of that the, that the courts and Congress will ride to the rescue mm-hmm. um, on their uh, uh, on the press's behalf. So first, let me just say that the courts nowadays are not a hundred percent pro press venues that you might think they would be if all you did was to read Supreme Court cases from the golden age of press law in the 1970s and early 80s, um, where the Supreme Court talked in glowing terms about the role of the press in democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem now is that cases, both libel and privacy and other kinds of cases, go both ways. As Amy Guida has highlighted in her important book, The First Amendment Bubble, And courts seem to be also increasingly using balancing approaches to press cases, weighing the press's interests as to which the courts are a little bit skeptical. And they're sort of wondering, well, why is it that you have to know the juvenile's name in order to understand what's going on Mm -hmm. Um, with privacy concerns? And they're explicit in uh, looking at this as a kind of balancing of relatively equivalent kinds of weights. 
But the press is in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Privacy as such is not. And yet this balancing kind of approach, I think, is really uh, has has really caught fire. Um, We also see courts, especially trial courts, um, who don't seem to be as uh, sensitive to First Amendment and press concerns, issuing gag orders right and left, uh, and even threats of contempt proceedings against the press. For example, a local example is that a judge in a litigation concer- uh, concerning the Parkland school shooting lambasted the Sun Sentinel's counsel over publishing of the newspaper's publication of an article based on unredacting a redacted Broward County School Board report on the shooting and uh, what Nicholas Cruz's um, reasons for acting as he did were. The report had been made publicly available Mm -hmm. by the Broward County School Board. And and it had been uh, made publicly available with redactions, that's true, and redactions that apparently complied with a court order. But the Broward County School Board didn't understand the redaction technology that it used. And so the redactions could easily be technologically reversed, which Mm -hmm. is what the reporters for the Sun Sentinel did. Um, And they were able to report for the first time information about why it is that this shooter potentially did what he did, Mm -hmm. an issue that had really been uh, quite... um, uh, dominant in the public discourse, if not around the country, certainly down here in Florida. Ultimately, the judge didn't issue a contempt order, but she certainly considered imposing a contempt order on the press mm-hmm. for having published information from a publicly available government document. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal, it seems to me. Um, a number of courts have refused to apply the defense protective dismissal procedures. Now, there are, of course, a lot of counter examples uh, in the courts that are press protective decisions. I am not saying otherwise. But the uncertainty itself becomes an issue for the press. So, for example, um, press organizations like even the New York Times have been a little bit more timorous than you might expect in terms of their reactions to governmental gag orders. So recently, a local Australian court issued or purported to issue a global gag order prohibiting any discussion, uh, including the name of the relevant person, about a renowned prelate's trial for child sexual abuse. I think like 77 counts of sexual abuse. Well, the... um, the gag order would have prohibited news organizations everywhere in the world from reporting on it, including the details, the name of the, uh, uh, I think he read Archbishop, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. And um, it did ultimately get out on the Internet mm-hmm. um, and the Washington Post subsequently reported it. But the New York Times did not report the story in its online edition. Mm-hmm. It reported the story in its print edition. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the New York Times. The newspaper of record. 
Right, the newspaper of record, precisely. Mm-hmm. And the newspaper that actually has been making money and could afford some lawyers to fight the jurisdictional uh, uh, mm-hmm. issues. And yet uh, they didn't. So it strikes me, you know. Now, the thing is that we have to worry, I think, in all of these uh, judicial contexts also um, about how the anti-press rhetoric that pervades the culture can have an effect on juries can have an effect on the election or appointment of judges who may be more press skeptical. Uh, Procedural rules, this is a really important one, procedural rules can constrain the press's legal options. So, for example, in Hulk Hogan's privacy case against Gawker for having shown a sex tape in which he starred, the Florida jury awarded him damages of $140 million. Now, the action on behalf of the plaintiff, was actually funded by Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley billionaire. He wanted to shut down Gawker for his own reasons and so put his money behind uh, Terry Bollea, that's Hulk Hogan's uh, uh, name, uh, his action against Gawker. Now, because uh, Florida has an appeal bond statute that requires people who want to appeal from a judgment to post a bond. And because of the fact that the judgment was for $140 million, the appeals bond statute would have required Gawker to uh, post a $50 million appeal bond, which it could not do. Mm-hmm. And so it did not have the opportunity to appeal and it simply declared bankruptcy. So look at how these small procedural uh, limitations will end up having fundamental takedown effects on a press organization. Whether you like Gawker or not, Gawker did, at least at some points, break actual news stories. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the sex tape, or at least the part of the sex tape that they aired, was not a particularly newsworthy news story. Um, but that's, you know, beyond the scope of our discussion. Um, so uh, there have been lots of threats of leak prosecutions. Uh, reality winner just got a very long sentence um, f- in her trial. And so because of technology, because journalists are unlikely to be as good at, tra- at, at tradecraft, if you will, as spies and the national security surveillance state, journalists cannot realistically protect their sources mm-hmm. who are naturally going to be afraid of being prosecuted, mm-hmm. being discovered pretty easily, um, regardless of what the reporters try to do to protect their identities. Um, and one of the ways, by the way, in which that information gets out is that the government can subpoena and has subpoenaed, for example, phone records of a reporter. Well, the phone records of a reporter will reveal not only the identity of the one quote unquote leaker with whom supposedly the reporter was speaking, Mm -hmm. but also all of the other sources. And so then the government, having gotten this information in the course of uh, response to a subpoena in one context, Mm -hmm. is able to collect a gigantic amount of other information that will put other sources' identities at risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these are very practical ways in which the Trump administration's approach Uh, is going to have a fundamentally squelching effect on press news gathering operations. And the fact that they, that the press has, um, 
asked for 800,000 pieces of paper, uh, you know, uh, under the FOIA is not going to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. The way you know what to ask for is to have a leaker who's going to tell you what to ask for. You know, now is Congress going to come in on its charger and save the day? And I think the answer to that is also probably no. There hasn't been any movement on a federal reporter's privilege statute that would um, uh, allow reporters to say they're not going to name their source. Um, there's been no movement on other federal uh, statutes um, that some people have talked about. Congress hasn't enacted net neutrality rules legislatively. Query whether or not privacy related legislation and platform regulation of platforms like Facebook, Twitter, etc., mm-hmm. uh, if passed, would redound to the press's benefit. The more uh, they promote a broad conception of privacy, the more problematic that can be for the press because it will put the press as having the the onus of justifying uh, the need to, quote unquote, breach privacy. Um, And this isn't even to mention the First Amendment challenges that will be brought, I'm sure, uh, to legislative attempts to control speech. So, for example, disclosure obligations or uh, legislation against fake news and disinformation that's being bandied about uh, right now and that my excellent colleague Marianne Franks has spoken about in other contexts. Perfect. Well, the fight goes on. The fight. Well, hopefully the fight goes on and is a little bit more successful than I fear. Thank you very much for having me, Catherine. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. On next week's episode, we sit down with sports law expert Peter Carfagna for a deep dive into concussions and football litigation. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is brought to you by Miami Law's hands-on learning programs, practicums, clinics, externships, and public interest. For more information, log on to law.miami.edu.